Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. In the past few months, we released around 30 interviews on the various aspects of the coronavirus crisis as part of our special COVID-19 coverage. But because we prioritized those episodes due to the timely fashion and urgency of the crisis, we in fact delayed the scheduled release of some of our earlier interviews, uh, which were equally fascinating and important. This interview that I'm about to present to you right now was recorded on March 5th with Ms. Stephanie Avakian, who is one of the two co-directors two co of the Division of Enforcement at the SEC. She was on campus that day to talk about fintech regulation, some major cases of fraud, as well as the technical aspects in terms of how to judge when a virtual currency is a security and when it's not. As some of you may know, there's been a long debate on whether Bitcoins and other forms of cryptocurrencies should be considered as a form of security and therefore be regulated by the SEC. And another interesting aspect that we touched on in this interview is the famous and fascinating cases that Ms. Avakian has worked on during her tenure at SEC. Uh, one of them is the Fire Festival, as you may know from the famous uh, Netflix documentary. Uh, another is Elizabeth Holmes and uh, Theranos, uh, which is the major fraud case coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, another interesting case is uh, SEC's settlement with Elon Musk earlier in 2019, uh, when SEC created a committee to review Elon Musk's tweets which is actually a really novel settlement and not just about monetary punishment anymore. Uh, I'll also ask Ms. Avakian some questions on cyber-related aspects. Uh, one is cybersecurity, and another is how and why it's problematic uh, for celebrities to tout cryptocurrencies online these days, such as DJ Khaled or Floyd Mayweather. It is such a fascinating conversation I had um, before I left campus. It is one of the last interviews I did and also one of the most interesting interviews I did all year around. Uh, if you're interested in the business world or the tech world or financial regulations, you can find something interesting from this interview. And I really, really hope you may enjoy my conversation with Ms. Stephanie Avakian. So excited to have you here, Ms. Avakian. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tiger, for having me today. Uh, so. Why don't we just start with your experience at the SEC? You are the director of division uh, of enforcement, oversee a range of cases uh, from fintech like cryptocurrency to the big banks. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about what you do uh, and about your division? Yeah, um, I would love to. Um, so I've been back at the SEC now since about 2014, so uh, just uh, about six years or so. I came back as deputy director um, and have been um, the co-director of the enforcement division for just over three years or so now. And you're right, we oversee um, a huge number of investigations and cases. Um, and primarily what we do in the Division of Enforcement is the civil um, enforcement of the federal securities laws. And so um, that basically means that we investigate cases and we make recommendations to the commission um, to file actions. And on an average year, you know, for example, last year we brought um, between eight and 900 enforcement actions um, the year before, probably in the same range. And so, you know, if you think about that at any given time, we've got probably in the range of 1,500 open investigations, um, you know, bringing hundreds of them every year. And in those, you know, in those actions, they cover really a wide variety of conduct. And I think you alluded to this. But think about it as everything from large public companies and C-suite executives um, all the way down to, 
you know, sort of um, Ponzi schemers and uh, people who were, you know, ripping off the elderly and veterans and teachers um, and everything in between. So insider trading, um, cyber and and other similar abuses, as you sort of alluded to, um, and then, you know, conduct by registrants. So our registered investment advisors, broker dealers and the like. And there's all kinds of other stuff in between. But it's a it's an incredibly broad spectrum of stuff that we look at. Everybody should be kind of scared when yeah. they listen to this. <laughs> uh, so who exactly would conduct some of those investigations? You mentioned that there are 1,500 open cases a year. So I suppose there must be a wide number of, of lawyers. Yeah, in the enforcement division, we have roughly 1,400 Um uh, employees, and that's a pretty broad mix of people, but mainly um, attorneys uh, who do investigations, but other professionals like accountants, industry specialists, support personnel, forensic analysts, all kinds of people. But but roughly um, fourteen hundred or so people. So it's pretty it's a pretty big group, and it's the largest division at the SEC. And in terms of how it's the cases are being initiated or opened or inspired, uh, are they usually passed down from other uh, departments or all kinds of ways? So proactive, you know, people come up with interesting ideas and they pursue them um, using uh, data or data analytics. Um, Self reports, so a company you know realizes it's done something wrong, comes in and tells us. We get um, about 20,000 tips, complaints, and referrals every year into our tips, complaints, and referrals system. All of those are triaged by human beings, um, so they turn into cases, things like uh, suspicious activity reports and things like that that we review, and referrals from other agencies um, like DOJ, like state agencies. And just sort of going back to proactive efforts, one of the things we've done a lot in the last few years is sort of develop our own data-driven analysis. So a perfect example is in the insider trading space, we have proprietary tools that we have created um, that enable us to analyze trading records um, and identify people who are, you know, trading uh, um, in a very beneficial way, for example, before significant public announcements um, or people who are trading in concert together um, and things like that. So we actually have identified a very large number of our insider trading cases through our own analysis. So it's a couple of examples. Uh, and the newspaper. I should have said that. Stuff we see in the newspaper. <laughs> so, so when you I mean, read the Wall Street Journal every morning, maybe you'll try to get some information here and there and get inspired. And Absolutely. There's stuff we see in there and we'll say, somebody looking at this? We should be looking at this. Yeah. Or, or maybe uh, listen to Policy Punchline. We would kind of, you know, slip in some 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 tips for the SEC here and there. Or, That's right. Yeah. If you have any <laughs> ideas, don't pull back. <laughs> yeah. Like the Ponzi scheme, my roommate and I are running. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, <laughs> Uh, why, why don't you talk a little bit about like why SEC's work interests you? Because I think we, we, we hear about SEC, we also hear about FTC, we hear about the D- Department of Justice, uh, and, and especially given all the uh, quote-unquote antitrust uh, mm-hmm. you know, narratives, uh, the regulations against big tech, uh, big banks. So it seems that there are a lot of different uh, regulatory agencies at play. So how is SEC different from them and, and what's uh, so unique to you, uh, SEC? It's a great question. I mean, we're different in the sense that our mandate is to protect investors. I mean, we have a a three-part mandate, protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. But fundamentally, we are the only federal agency with the mandate to protect investors. Um, And so when you take a step back, you know, sort of, why do I like it? What do I find challenging? I mean, that 
that is incredibly satisfying. What we do, you know, we bring tons of cases every year um, that, that never make the front page, never make the Wall Street Journal, never make the last page, um, you know, that are stopping people who are committing offering frauds and Ponzi schemes and all kinds of actions that are literally taking away hundreds of millions of dollars from our Main Street investors, you know, people who've saved their retirements, saved to send their kids to school, whatever it is, and are just robbing them. And so it is incredibly satisfying. Well, it's incredibly depressing to see how much of that is out there. But it's incredibly satisfying to um, to stop those cases, to bring those people to justice, and most importantly, where we can return money to harmed investors. And so just to give you a sense of you know the focus we've placed on returning money to harmed investors in the last three years, we've returned, I think, more than $3 billion back to harmed investors. Um, you know, which is incredibly satisfying. Um, and we spend a lot of time and energy, you know, focused on how we can do that. That, that sounds amazing. Um, because I think a lot of times we don't, as you said, we don't actually read about those cases that right. often. Um, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, but how has the SEC's approach to enforcement been evolving over the years, I, I guess? What are some of the key changes that have that happened in their division and in the agency that you think would be interesting for some of our listeners to learn about? Sure. I mean, I think we, we obviously make lots of structural changes and changes around the edges over time and how we think about cases. But probably the most interesting way that what we do has evolved over the recent years is really using technology and data. Um, and I alluded to it with the insider trading type cases, but there are others as well. And I think the way we are using data proactively to come up with investigative theories um, and to identify misconduct and you know serial insider trading schemes and things like that is really a game changer. You know things that. A, we would have never been able. I mean, there are things five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, we wouldn't have been able to detect. And I think, you know, the changes in technology and our use of data really have um, made those things possible. And then, you know, lots of forensics, things like IP address um, tracing and things like that, you know, engaging in things like chain analysis and, and other things as technology changes and as the way that people um, – commit fraud changes, you know, we sort of have to evolve with that. So to me, that's been the biggest evolution is, you know, things that we wouldn't have detected years ago, or even if we had detected them, would have been incredibly difficult and time consuming to put together, have changed substantially. Uh, just a quick follow up to that. Uh, you said, you know, you've kind of used data and technology to kind of uh, be more proactive when it mm -hmm. comes to detecting fraud and, and things like that. Will regulators ever get ahead of criminal activities in that sense? Because I feel like I've talked to some regulators and they always say we have to recognize as a premise that we will always be behind and we kind of have to just try to keep up. What do you think of this debate? I, you know, I think um, hard to say we're ever going to get ahead of, of all the bad guys. Um, but I do think, you know, as we think creatively about how to look around the corner, you know, there are things um, that I think we can be on top of, but it's 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 a great question. And, um, you know, technology develops so quickly and we're usually um, not the ones developing it. Right. So um, I think we're trying to really be thoughtful and proactive about how people are going to use technology to do bad things. Um, this is not exactly the example you're looking for, but I, I will point to is sort of just how we try to think quickly. You know, we've already brought, I think, two trading suspensions in the last couple of weeks of companies that had some claim 
of their abilities to do something relating to the coronavirus, right? So with with the advent of every issue, whether it's anthrax scare or, you know, coronavirus or Katrina or, you know, any number of things, fraudsters will come out of the woodwork and try to capitalize on it. And so, you know, for coronavirus, we have been very specifically keeping our eyes open and looking for, you know, are we seeing people trying to mislead investors or are we seeing dubious claims and should we act? Yeah, I suppose the uh, financial markets is really kind of relate, touch on everything and every field can be somewhat related to it so that even for something like coronavirus that people might not exactly immediately think SEC would have any moment to it, the SEC would really have to be proactive and think about those issues. Yeah. Th- that totally makes sense. Uh, why don't we just pivot a little bit about uh, fintech? Because you'll be having a launch conversation today about enforcements in the fintech space uh, at Princeton. Uh, not fintech enforcement at Princeton, but (laughs) having a lunch talk (laughs) at Princeton about fintech enforcement, uh, which actually doesn't immediately strike me as something that, you know, the the stock market um, that would naturally fall under SEC's regulatory regime, like, you know, like the coronavirus example that we just talked about. So from your perspective, how has the fintech uh, space evolved? Uh, Why is it important to regulate the space? And how exactly is the SEC regulating the space? It's a great question. Um, you know, the fintech space has obviously dramatically um, evolved in all kinds of ways, and it's been very exciting. I think it's very exciting to think about the things that can be done um, in the financial markets with the advent of the blockchain and all kinds of other, you know, technological advances. Um, you know, for us in enforcement, and so the agency writ large, I think, has more a broader mandate than than really what we're just looking at in enforcement. But for us, the majority of what we've looked at and thought about regulating in the fintech space is really the advent of ICOs or initial coin offerings. Um, you know, and fundamentally, look, we've taken a step back. We regulate securities. And so if something's a security, it's, you know, it's within our um, – it's within our jurisdiction. And if something's a security, it needs to be registered with the SEC or it needs to be exempt from registration. And so, you know, when you think about an ICO, for example, I kind of think about them, and this is a very broad statement, um, but you kind of think about them like an IPO, right? I mean, it's a fundraising effort in order to, um, you know, in order to fund some project, some enterprise, some something. And rather than giving someone a stock certificate, like you do in an IPO or a share of stock in their brokerage account, they're getting a coin or a token or some other you know, representation. digital representation of an ownership interest. And if it falls within the definition of a security, which was defined back in the 1940s in the Howey case, you know, which is basically, is it, um, is it an investment of money in a, um, in a common enterprise for the purpose of um, realizing a profit based solely on the effort of others. I mean, that's fundamentally the definition of a security. And so if it falls within that, you know, it's got to be registered or it's got to be exempt from registration. And why does that matter? It really matters because people who are buying securities, I mean, it kind of goes back to why do we have the, you know, the 34 Act on the back of the Great Depression, you know, as part of the great of the uh, of the uh, New Deal legislation, you know, but but it goes back to investors who are buying securities are entitled to full disclosure under the securities laws. And, you know, if if you need to, you know, if you have a security that needs to be registered, then there's certain information that's required to be provided so that investors can make a, a decision. Um, and, you know, if it's exempt from registration, then there are probably other protections around it. 
like an investor has to be accredited or have a certain amount of money or there's some other restrictions around it. But that's fundamentally it is so that people can make thoughtful investment decisions based on actual facts. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this concept of uh, disclosure and thoughtful um, sort of investing because ultimately it's about protecting the investors and being proactive about that. And I think that's the reason why uh, the SEC punished celebrities who touted uh, the cryptocurrencies online like DJ Khaled or Floyd Mayweather, which I think are two really interesting cases because, uh, you know, uh, again, initially when you read about those things, you would say, well, why, why would you punish just people tweeting about things that, that mm-hmm. they bossing like? So would you mind t- telling us a little bit about the, the cases? Yeah, I mean, there are fascinating cases. And we also brought one a week or so ago against Steven Seagal for the same um, type of conduct. And we don't take issue really with people promoting a security. But the securities laws require that if you are promoting a security and you are being compensated for it, you have to disclose that you are being compensated for it. You have to skin the game. Yeah, you have skin in the game, right? And so I'm saying this to you because I'm getting paid to say this to you. And it's really about, you know, making sure investors can assess whether this is advice that's independent, advice that they want to credit or not, and whether somebody gets paid or not is relevant to that consideration. So I, I mean, I think the the whole digital media space has completely changed the way information is being disclosed. Which I think I'll ask you a little bit later uh, about the Elon Musk tweet thing. But just a little bit more about fintech. I, I think, um, do you think regulators are, are thinking enough about innovations like blockchain or AI that don't seem to right now immediately have a direct application to the financial market or direct impact? But maybe there is a chance the world. So I don't immediately see a connection, but has the SEC kind of spotted some interesting connections between those those cases? I think regulators are trying to. Um, you know, we have at the SEC um, something called FinHub, which is our strategic hub for innovation and financial technology. And it's a group, you know, it's outside enforcement. Um, and they seek to engage with fintech communities across the country. They hold large forums. They host peer-to-peer meetings. And they're really trying to be educated um, and I think be in a dialogue as issues come up. And we're not really the only agency doing it. The CFTC has something called Lab CFTC. And so I think that agencies are trying to be as educated as they can and really engage in a meaningful way with the fintech communities. Yeah. I mean, I think the space, how quickly the fintech space has evolved is, I mean, right now it seems that if you, uh, if you ask like Princeton kids, Hey, like pitch me like an interesting startup or something. Maybe five out of ten kids would name like a fintech. Everybody's talking about the fintech startups. Like, yeah, it's amazing. It's like how to how do you like save money? How to do and also things like Robinhood, whatever. How you trade things, all that stuff and uh, Bitcoin. I'm sure you have Bitcoin. lots of friends who have Bitcoin. Exactly. <laughs> I, I would make the full disclosure here that I don't own any Bitcoin on, on, the, on the podcast. So. Yeah, um, and, and I think another interesting space that I guess right um, related to fintechs is uh, cybersecurity, which mm-hmm. I think is a field that you are very, very uh, passionate about and, and has a lot of thoughts on. Um, you've talked a lot about how cybersecurity threats are one of the biggest challenges the SEC faces today uh, in some of your previous interviews and such. Uh, would you mind just elaborate a, a little bit on that? What specific cyber threats that you think the SEC has to deal with? Uh, what are some of the effective strategies that we've had so far? Sure. I mean, I think I, I kind of think about the cyber threats in two buckets. One is as it relates to what we in enforcement regulate, and I'll come back to that. Um, but the first is just a threat to the market, right? I mean, cyber is just a huge threat to the market. Um, and that's not something we in enforcement, you know, 
are um, have have jurisdiction over. But just when you take a step back and um, think about what are the risks to our marketplace, to our country, to you know, to the way we live. Cyber threats are what I would put at the top of that. Um, now, what do we in enforcement, um, how do we think about it? So even there, I would say I kind of put it into two buckets of things. One is how do we think about it for our registrant community? And then how do we think about it for our public company community? And so for our registrant community, you know, we don't have, um, for the most part, we don't have prescriptive regulations, but we do have some regulations um, that affect registrants. So Reg SCI, um, which is is more prescriptive, I shouldn't say prescriptive, but it is more specific about um, what certain registrants are required to do to have in place to protect against cyber threats um, and other threats. Um, and then Reg SP, and there are some other regs, which is um, which require registrants to protect customer information, basically. Um, and so in those kinds of cases, you know, we do, when I say we, I mean the SEC now. So we have an Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations that goes in regularly and inspects um, regulated entities and looks at these issues. And then we in enforcement will bring cases if there's really a um, a significant violation uh, in one of those spaces. And so just to put it in perspective, you know, one of the things I've talked a lot about is, or I've been asked a lot about, I should say, is, you know, should you be pursuing actions against entities who are hacked or entities who are victims of a cyber attack of some sort? You know, they're the victim. Should you be pursuing actions? And I think there what I would say is we've been pretty um, judicious about where we bring cases against registrants. Um, there have been a very small number, probably less than 10. Um, and those are cases where registrants really fell short of what the um, what the regulatory obligations are in terms of protecting customer information. How would you define a registrant? Would, would it just be any kind of uh, company that, that really owns those data? That... Sorry, I should have been more clear. A broker dealer or an investment advisor. So, you know, somebody who is... Um, who has clients and, and like JP Morgan Chase something. exactly exactly like a big broker dealer or an investment advisor like a you know a mutual fund um, uh, entity or something like that so and I suppose they often outsource a lot of the infrastructure cybersecurity infrastructure to a lot of other outside companies or, or, or service providers that help them do that and then I think that's the, that's when the connection becomes iffy that when they're the victim of a hack um, sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's their contractor's fault, or or the, the infrastructure infrastructure provider's fault. So, um, yeah, it really the, depends on the registrant. The smaller ones, I think, do outsource a lot of it. The larger ones probably do more yeah. internally. But the few cases that we've brought in this space for these failures really are cases where there's you know a failure to have appropriate um, permissions in place, or way too many people had access to way too much information. Those those kinds of things. Um, but but true failures to take appropriate steps to secure information. But then on the other hand, so the other, the second bucket, and this is where I think you were going, are these large public companies. And we don't regulate um, how they, you know, protect um, their information, right? We, we don't have, um, it, it's different from our broker dealer and investment advisor registrants. But for public companies, um, we obviously, um, 
look at their disclosure. And so, you know, is there a disclosure? Um, Once is it there accurate? Is data breach. Whether there's a data breach or whether it's about their um, the protections that they have in place, you know, are they accurate disclosures and things like that? And so, if you look at all the companies that have had data breaches, and this is coming back to the point I've made about we've been very judicious about the cases we bring, we've recognized the challenges that companies face. Um, in making disclosures in the wake of a data breach um, or cyber breach of some sort. We've brought one case, which was against um, the entity formerly known as Yahoo. Um, and that was in the wake of their massive um, breach for you know failing to make, um, for having misleading disclosures in the wake of that breach. And so I think, and I've said this a lot publicly, um, we really do recognize the challenges that companies face. We recognize that they're a victim. And in the wake of a breach, we also recognize that it's incredibly difficult to get your arms around it. Um, and so we're not in the business of second guessing good faith disclosures. When, you know, I, I think that's just such a, a t tough, uh, more ethical question. I, I, I mean, it's not that tough, but I think often when companies have to make those more ethical decisions, the trade-off between doing what should be right and what uh, would be benefit them the most, I, I think it might be hard to to make that decision. Because I read uh, this book about Uber called Super Pumped, which is about the rise and fall of Travis Kalanick and, and Uber. And they, they had multiple data breaches, I think, uh, when they were at their high growth stage and they just didn't disclose it at all. I mean, obviously, Uber isn't a case of in terms of uh, directly, um, in, maybe not in terms of financial markets, but they also had investors. They also had, uh, you know, people who work for them, and and it's this sort of growth at all costs mentality that prevented them from from doing the right thing. So I think, I think you're identifying, you know, a key issue in our disclosure regime writ large, which is, you need to tell the truth, right? I mean, when I say we're not. Um, we're not second guessing good faith disclosures. You know, when when a company puts disclosures out in the weeks following a data breach, if it's not exactly right, but they're trying to get it right, you know, we're sort of considering the full context here, what they knew, when they knew it, and what they're saying about it, and is what they're saying consistent with what they knew. But we'll we'll probably talk today a little bit about other types of companies that have big problems or had big problems and knew about those problems and when given an opportunity to say something to the market about those problems, said something misleading as opposed to saying something truthful. And I think you're exactly right that, you know, fundamentally, public companies need to tell their investors the truth. Would you mind telling us some of those cases that, that companies decided not to give? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I think you and I, you would express some interest in early in this um, was talking about the Wells Fargo case that yes. we brought recently, um, which is, you know, fundamentally this issue that I'm talking about. You know, we brought an action um, against Wells Fargo and charged them, alleged that they misled their shareholders. Um, about uh, the success of their core business strategy. And so this is um, the case where the underlying facts were that um, Wells Fargo had um, employees who had engaged in sales practice misconduct. Um, and that was that conduct is part of actions brought by other governmental entities. Um, the action that the SEC brought a couple of weeks ago was focused on what Wells Fargo said to its shareholders. Um, and our allegations are, you know, very broadly speaking, um, were that they made misrepresentations, you know, repeated misrepresentations to investors, including 
about um, an important metric called cross-sell for its largest um, business segment. And cross-sale or? Cross-sell. 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 So um, it was, you know, this was a metric that Wells Fargo presented as a measure of its success in executing on what it called its cross-sell strategy, which was to sell to existing customers additional financial products that those customers needed. Um, and they characterized this strategy as central to their um, success and sought to induce investors' reliance on this cross-sell metric. Um, but in reality, at least as we allege um, in our action, they misled investors by falsely presenting this metric. So um, as we discussed, they had employees who were opening um, millions of accounts or financial products that were unauthorized or fraudulent. And then they pushed products on customers that they didn't need or wouldn't use. And these unauthorized, unneeded, unused accounts and products inflated this cross-sell metric. So they were pointing to this metric as a measure of success. And then when the measure dropped, subsequently in part because of efforts to address the misconduct, they continued to mislead investors about why that metric dropped. So what was the investigative process like? How did you guys come across this thing? And, and I, I suppose the case lasted for a long, long time, right? I mean, without talking about any specific yeah, investigation yeah. or the specifics of this one, um, this is obviously a complex set of facts. Um, and, you know, I think our typical investigation on average is around two years, 24 months. That metric changes. Sometimes it's a little less. Sometimes it's a little more. But in a complex case like this, you would expect it to, um, you know, to, to take a decent amount of time. I mean, that just sounds so um, – I think it's a pretty clear-cut case in terms of how they, they genuinely violated the, the consumer's trust and – Th that totally makes sense uh, why you guys should have investigated it. But I also suppose there are a lot of companies, uh, the public companies included, when they do their company earning call earnings calls or, or things like that, uh, I think they would come up with their own metrics or, or re regarding how, they, how they're profitable or, or um, I wouldn't say illegally misleading investors, but s somehow they would often present rosier pictures than than often it actually is. So when it comes to things like that, I, th I, I suppose the boundary would be much grayer, right? It would be much harder to draw the boundary because the SEC is ultimately about protecting the investors, not being an activist in terms of uh, knocking down companies that are overvaluated. Yeah, I mean, look, if a company speaks, it has to speak truthfully. And, and sure, man, maybe there are circumstances where, you know, you can sort of um, present something in, in the best light possible. Um, but, uh, you know, we really are regulating whether a company is engaged in misleading investors um, and whether they are, um, you know, consciously trying to or negligently, um, or negligently, or negligently um, misleading investors, you know, um, either by making mis Mis misstatements about something that's material or by omitting um, to say something that would make a statement true. Yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So, so after you, the, the Wells Fargo's um, case was disclosed and kind of uh, continue up to this stage, looking back, uh, what were you some of, the, some of the main takeaways that you've had from that process and that case? I mean, I think... A takeaway, I think there are probably two takeaways from the Wells Fargo case. Um, probably the first one is not, um, it's not so specific to uh, 
to the securities laws. But just if you, you know, read the charging documents in that case and you look at the allegations about what the and, and Wells Fargo's admissions about what the underlying conduct was, you know, which was fundamentally um, inappropriate um, sales practices, you know, that were driven by um, aggressive sales goals. You know, I think there's a lesson in there for all companies, right, to to take a step back and think about how the – and it's really a governance issue, thinking about, you know, how is it that what we're requiring of our employees is driving behavior? What is driving behavior and is it an appropriate driver of behavior? Um, and is it driving um, illegal behavior? Is it driving unethical behavior? You know, what is it? So I think there's a governance lesson in there for companies. Um, the one in the, the, the lesson in there that really is um, an SEC lesson, I think, is you have to speak truthfully to your investors. When you have a big problem, you identify a big problem, and this is not just specific to Wells Fargo, but to lots of cases that we see. When you identify that you have a problem, you cannot go into the marketplace and present things as rosy. And, um, you know, and, and look, there are lots of laws around what's required disclosure versus what's voluntary disclosure, you know, whether it's material or immaterial. But once you speak, you have to speak truthfully. Um, and so there are things that the securities law specifically require you to talk about. And when you talk about those things, you have to be truthful. And there are other things, you know, at analyst conference calls and things like that, that people, that companies are choosing to talk about. And when they talk about those things, they have to give honest answers. They have to give on, you know, make honest statements. And I do think we see, you know, um, and I've seen it both here and I've seen it in private practice, um, companies that do not want to take head on their problems um, and instead, by disguising them, end up with a much bigger problem. So when we talk about how companies often feel reluctant uh, to act ethically or morally or legally in face of those difficult situations, uh, we kind of characterize them as sort of quote unquote companies. But do we should we think of them as companies or think of them as a few executives or decision makers inside the company that made this decision? So. How do we separate the, the company culture from the people, from the, the company itself? So, uh, you know, there are people like Senator Warren who is basically proposing to take executives personally accountable for things like that. And there's so much criticism about, oh, the 2000 financial crisis, none of those big bankers ended up going to jail. So uh, what do you think of that issue? That, uh, that is a great question. And that is, you know, the issue of individual accountability is very much front of mind um, for us. And we bring, you know, loads of cases against individuals. I'd say on average, 70, 75 percent of our cases involve charges against individuals. But you're really talking about those large public companies and those C-suite executives. Um, and it really depends on the type of case. There is nothing more important than individual accountability, at least in my mind, right? I mean, there's no greater deterrent of bad conduct than holding individuals specifically accountable. And so, you know, where we, where the evidence um, where the evidence supports charges against individuals, we will always pursue it. Um, now, when you when we talk about using as examples some of these public companies, you know, was the misconduct intentional? If it was intentional, it's more than likely that there is some number of individuals who are responsible for that. And and where the evidence is supportive, those charges should be brought. There are cases of. Um, that we bring that allege that a company was negligent. 
And those are more often cases where there's some sort of, you know, there's broad responsibility across the company for handling various pieces of an issue. And there are gaps there for which no one person or even small number of people are really responsible. But there's sort of an overall corporate failure to have in place um, a policy or a program or a something that's going to prevent this violation from happening. But going back to those cases where there's reckless or intentional conduct, you know, you will almost always see us bring charges against individuals. Not every single case. The evidence isn't always you know, doesn't always allow us to do that, but we will always investigate those cases and bring them where we can. Uh, I, I don't. So, as a, as a regulator, you you, have, you often said you said at the beginning that seeing so many illegal cases happen every day, it's hard to to maintain this sort of cheerful, I guess, optimism. I, I, how do you maintain not to be cynical in this sense? Because I feel like the the a lot of people could be cynical when looking at things and say. Oh yeah, I see government and, and regulation at, as this system and machine that is already being controlled and bought out by the corporate interests, and that's why they never bring charges to them, and that's why the the, the, the regulatory regime fundamentally does not work. The, the fact that there's so many bad stuff that still happens. So, h- how do you not de- devolve into that kind of mentality when there's so much stuff, bad stuff that happens? Yeah, you you just can't. You really have to focus on every single case that's in front of you and think about what's the right answer in this case? What should we be doing here? Because you're right, there there are not a lot of people out there jumping up and down and saying, hey, SEC, you're doing a great job. You know, we have we have a lot of critics. Um, and, uh, and we have to t- tune that out and really think about, you know, every single case that's in front of us, every investigation, every issue that's in front of us and decided on its own merits. And keep in mind the big picture, you know, even if you think about the Wells Fargo case, for example, they paid $500 million to settle that case. We're returning all that money to harmed investors. You know, you go back to some of the other cases I was talking about and the $3 billion we've returned to investors over the last few years. Thinking about those kinds of things is incredibly motivating. You know, getting money back into people's pockets is incredibly motivating. Stopping really bad people from doing stuff, you know, getting uh, working with the criminal authorities such that somebody who is, you know, ripping off – um, you know, the elderly or the, you know, military or whatever, and and being part of a case that ends up in someone going to jail, those things are incredibly motivating. Don't you sometimes feel like you're fighting against human nature in the sense that humans are, humans are uh, prone to misjudgments, humans are, have the tendency to want to defraud and to cheat and to benefit themselves and the financial market is arguably one of the the places that have this kind of exhibit the, the worst of the humanity really being exhibited. So, I I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot of bad people, but there are way more good people. Awesome. That, that's that's a good way to think about this. What, what about the the idea of progress? I know we're kind of going off a tangent here because I'm, because if I, I I think if I ask you whether we've kind of made progress as as a regulatory regime uh, you i think you would say that we've we've definitely made progress in terms of uh, as you said you know using data being more prog- proactive and, and thinking more deliberately through some of those cases uh but why are there still so much bad stuff happening is 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 there something underlying about the markets and financial markets and and how business work that fundamentally incentivize people to do bad things 
I mean, that we just can't solve. I, I, I just think there are always going to be people doing bad things, right? I mean, as you said, and it's not specific to the financial markets. I mean, look at crime on every level, right? There's always bad stuff that's happening. There are always going to be murders and robberies and things like that, regardless of how long people go to jail for or all kinds of other things. And so, you know, I think in the regulatory space, um, I think, you know, We've come a long way. You know, we've seen a lot of regulation change and we've seen the SEC bring lots of cases in the financial fraud and public disclosure space. And so I do think, you know, to some degree, we've seen behaviors change at large institutions. It's never going to be perfect, um, but I do think we've seen it change. I think if you look at the other types of cases where it's just thieves robbing people, you know, the most we can do is keep trying to go after that. Um, and educating people. So one of the things this agency has spent a lot of energy on is educating. Um, we've done it in the Division of Enforcement, but the agency writ large has done it as well. And so that's through a combination of we're going out across the country and trying to teach people financial literacy and we're holding town halls and we're meeting on military bases and we're meeting with teachers and we're doing all kinds of things to educate and to empower people to make good decisions. And we're also, when we bring a lot of these cases, we're putting out investor alerts at the same time that detail what the what people were saying to get people to part with their money, you know. And, you know, if someone, you know, the old, if someone says it's too good to be true, you know, if it, if it feels too good to be true, it probably is. You know, we're trying to just pound that into people's heads. We're doing webcasts and trying to discourage people from investing over social media and just all kinds of things to try to attack the problem from both sides. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you, you, when you mentioned financial literacy, I think that's just going to be a it's a huge issue even on campus in, in a place like Princeton because uh, we, we had the chance to interview its former director of investment management, Norm Champ, mm -hmm. uh, who, who wrote this book, Going Public, uh, about his experience with the SEC. And he's just releasing a new book about financial literacy. And uh, I, I think he's coming back this year to give a talk about financial literacy. I, I, I just think that's a, like a according to him and also talking to people on campus it's not even people don't care nearly as much in terms of uh, the importance of this basic type of literacy uh, and ends up really getting into bad situations yeah, yeah. That, that that totally makes sense uh, I, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of very interesting and notable cases uh, that, that uh, I think everybody knows about um, but but I had no idea that you were the one that that did this. So <laughs> when I when I learned about it, uh, uh, that that you were the one that um, did some of those cases, I um, not only admiration and respect, but I also wanted to hear some of the interesting details because uh, Elon Musk settlement, Elizabeth Holmes with the Theranos, the Fire Festival. Uh, oh my God, this uh, I, I'm really scared right now. First of all, so. <laughs> um, in, in the recent settlement with Elon Musk, I think specifically, it's really interesting that the SEC established this uh, an oversight committee to review his social media communications to prevent any more misleading tweets in the future, which is um, not conventionally just doing the monetary punishment. So would you mind tell, telling us a little bit about that, like how you arrived at that decision and uh, what's, what's it like to deal with this guy? Well, without getting into those specifics, yeah. just sort of, but nice try. Um, but, but, but Paul has devolved exactly. into a gossiping show. About, yeah. But we do try to um, 
really focus on what is what remedies are necessary to address misconduct. And my partner, Steve Pekin, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about this in cases. You know, there are lots of regular sort of normal components to settlements, as you say, financial remedies and things like that. But what else? What fundamentally was the misconduct? What are we worried about? How do we keep it from happening again? And I think here where you had someone, you know, a CEO of a public company who's tweeting and whose public company had previously made, you know, its own disclosure that the CEO's, you know, tweets are part of the are to be considered as part of the company's disclosures. Um, you know, this is a remedy that is tailored to address that circumstance, right? And to require some oversight. I mean, it obviously doesn't require oversight over all of um, his tweets unrelated to the company. You know, it's very, because obviously he can tweet about whatever he wants. Um, but when it comes to the public company, this is really, th this remedy is designed to address what the underlying problem was. Again, it goes back to the fundamental principle of protecting investors, not releasing misinformation, and and th that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, a quick follow up to that: Do you see it as, as being used more in in the future sort of social media environment? I mean, we kind of touched on it a, a little bit at the beginning. Um, you know, seeing this, the 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 nature of social media is kind of it lacks depth and nuance and context, uh, and, and even people sometimes criticize articles and journalism for that. And, and that's why I think fueled this growth of long form podcasts. And it's because mm -hmm. journalists are saying you can never mistaken a conversation because this is an hour conversation. It's way harder to get misquoted from this mm -hmm. than a tweet. Uh, but that's that's something so you know short and, and lack of a nuance. So how do you um, it seems to be inherently contradictory with, you know, market integrity and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, companies, public companies really have to have policies and procedures in place to control social media use about their company by their senior executives, right? I mean, it's just, um, and, and not up to us to say what those policies and procedures should be, but senior executives, depending on what they're saying and who they're saying it to, are speaking on behalf of their company. And so, um, you know, whether it's training, whether it's policies, whatever it is, but um, I'm not sure. I mean, social media makes it much more accessible and, it, you know, information can travel much farther, much faster. But I'm not sure it's a lot different from, you know, years ago when an executive would speak at a conference or to, an, you know, a large number of people or to analysts or whatever. So um, I'm not sure things have changed except that information can travel so rapidly. I, I think a lot of uh, social media, people who study media are, are making the argument that, uh, sure, the communications technology have changed, but the fundamental interaction and, and the way people actually connect through those uh, tools have not been drastically changed so that you could still have the fundamental underlying principle mm -hmm. of how you judge those criminal cases or uh, the spread of information uh, onto those those technologies. I think that's right. That, that, that totally makes sense. And another, that's, another case, uh, what about Elizabeth Holmes' uh, Theranos? I mean... I did not think that would be SEC thing at all. I mean, now I think about it, it still hurt private investors and things like that. But right. uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that case? Sure. I mean, that it's it's um, it comes back to the principle we were talking about before. When you speak to your investors, you have to speak honestly to your investors. Um, and this was, you know, um, I mean, I think. Uh, 
the remedies in this case are sort of another example of where we try to take a step back and really think about what was the problem here, what was some of the problem here, and how do we remedy that? And this was a circumstance where, because of the capital structure of the company, the CEO really had near complete control of that company. And so, you know, as part of the resolution here, there were undertakings designed to protect investors from um, you know, from that sort of situation going forward and required her to relinquish her voting control over Theranos by converting what she had, supermajority shares, to common shares um, and guaranteed that in a future sale or a liquidation event, she wouldn't profit from her ownership um, until $750 million had already been returned to other investors. So we really tried to, um, in that case, also tailor remedies to issues that existed in that case. I guess a quick follow-up to that is that uh, private companies these days, especially this whole Silicon Valley startup thing, it's so common for founders to have this sort of super voting mm-hmm. share structure. Uh, you could own 10% of the share and have 80% of the, the control or, or things like that. And also, it's they just don't disclose information. They don't have to disclose it to anyone, um, not just in terms of financial stats, but also in terms of their corporate governance, so the horrible things can happen within a small company that, that, that they just don't know about it. So how would, how does the SEC view private companies sort of in general, especially given how prevalent startups have really become? I mean, we have, you know, and I, so, so they're private companies, they're not required to register with the SEC, they're not making disclosures. Exactly. But they still have to speak truthfully to their investors about material issues. And so um, now, what they're saying may not be as obvious to the SEC in the first instance, right, because they're not making public disclosures or public statements. But Theranos is a great example of you know, a public company where material misrepresentations were made to investors. And we brought an action. And there are other private company cases out there um, that we've brought historically. And so you know, we certainly have anti-fraud authority there. But you identify, I think, you know, an issue, right, which is in a private company situation – whether they're owners controlling, you know, shareholders, management, whatever, like they have to make on it, you know, the the representations that they make to their investors or their prospective investors have to be truthful. I I think it must be so much harder to detect frauds from private companies than public companies. Would you say so from from a technical perspective or do you I mean, I think it's not as obvious, right? Because there aren't public statements that are, you know, in the public markets, you'll, company will make a statement or they'll correct a statement and you'll see the stock drop or you see the market react or you read an article. So it's a little bit different. Um, But, you know, we've got a pretty robust whistleblower program. um, And we do get whistleblower tips about all kinds of issues and things and private company whistleblower tips are no um, are no exception. And I mentioned earlier, we get 20,000 tips, complaints and referrals every year, um, many of which have to do with all sorts of issues. So it may not be as obvious um, in the open marketplace, you know, that there are um, issues sometimes when it results, when it has to do with private companies, but the information still seems to find its way to us. Yeah, and uh, certainly the information about Fire Festival found their way too. So, <laughs> I mean, I never heard about it until I watched the Netflix documentary last year, which was uh, just shocking. Uh, what, what was that case like? I mean, it was. Again, it didn't seem to be, uh, you know, about the financial market. But I mean, you know, that's sort of just another example of kind of a fairly typical offering fraud. I mean, atypical in the sense that it, you know, was um, so popular and, yeah. and well known and got so much attention. 
But, you know, otherwise, it's very similar to lots of other cases we bring where, you know, we're alleging that um, someone engaged in a multi-year offering fraud that raised, you know, more than $25 million from investors. And didn't actually do anything. Right. Well, I suppose one could always make that. Yeah, I tried, but I didn't work out. But (laughs) but no, he didn't actually try. No, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, what's the experience like when you, knowing that there are cases you're working on even right now, that would be like bombshells, the, the information that would blow people's mind, but you can't tell the public about it. Uh, the public can't know. And after you t- do decide to disclose it to the public, it will have tremendous uh, implications, impacts that might be intended or unintended consequences. Uh, so what's it like when, when when you work on those things knowing that kind of responsibility and and how do you think through some of those potential impacts and consequences so you're right there are tons of things um that we have that you know end up being incredibly um high profile for lots of different reasons and i think honestly it's just part of the job um you know they are they obviously get a ton more press attention um and that's good we should you know, there should be cases that get a lot of attention because I think there are always important messages for market participants um, in those cases. But otherwise, you know, we sit back and examine the evidence in those cases just like we do, you know, in all the other ones um, and bring them when they're ready. And, you know, as I said before, try to craft remedies um, that really make sense based on um, the circumstances. And, you know, some of these really big cases, uh, because they get so much attention, um, you know, they there are companies out there that may look at those remedies or other things that we do and, um, you know, think about whether that might be appropriate for their business or not. Obviously not why we do it, but I think that's a byproduct of some of these, um, the more high profile cases. So what about some of the cases that never make it to the publics? I mean, uh, I'm not I'm not tricking you to disclose information. <laughs> that uh, what about cases that are disclosed and and are public information, but they're just not as famous uh, as as a case like Fire Fire Festival, but actually have very grave implications about how we how how it shapes how SEC view regulation. Would you mind telling us a, a few pivotal cases like that? Um, we do try to um, we do try to really get messages out there. So if there is a case that we're bringing that we think has a broader market message, you know, maybe we'll go out and talk about it, um, uh, put out press releases and things like that. You know, I'm not sure. Um, what one case? Yeah, I, I didn't mean to put you on no, that's a, a okay. tricky, tricky spot. Yeah, my, my, my attempt failed again. In terms of <laughs> trying no, to... no, not at all. <laughs> and there are lots of cases, you know, look, we close lots of cases every year. So there are lots of things that ultimately never... Um, never come to fruition as we, you know, as we do our investigation. Um, But there are lots of things to do. And I think, you know, one of the things my partner and I have tried to do is go out publicly and be transparent about the things that we're looking at. Um, You know, we're not looking to play a game of gotcha. Um, I think things that we deem important um, based on the things we see, we try to go out and tell people. And so I gave a speech mm, a few months ago um, where I talked about, you know, fees in investment advisory type cases um, and some of the things that we are looking at. So, you know, fees in um, products that are sold or practices, conflicts of interest that are undisclosed in selling products to teachers, for instance, um, and other areas. You know, as we start to think about um, 
Fees are a good example because we've spent a lot of time looking at um, where there are undisclosed conflicts of interest related to um, fees and selling certain products. And we've tried to be transparent with the industry that we're looking at this. We think this, you know, this is a concern and folks out there should be looking at this. Absolutely. That, that totally makes sense. Um, uh, maybe we could uh, sort of wrap up the interview with some of the, your personal journey and thoughts because uh, I mean, you've it's been a pretty long career um, as, as a lawyer and also as, as a regulator enforcer in SEC and in public service. So I, I wanted to ask you, um, you, you right now you lead a group of approximately 1,400 employees at SEC. What are some of the guiding principles that you really follow and, and try to, again, maintain the sanity? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and you're right. You need some. Um, I think you need some guiding principles in a in a large organization. You know, I there are a few things that I try to um, ideas I try to manage by, and I wouldn't necessarily rank them in any particular order. But I think one of the critical things I have tried to do, um, and we've tried to do, is hire good, strong leaders, um, and then trust them to do their job. I think you've got to be able to rely on folks. You can't micromanage. I try to think about things in terms of the big picture and on any given case or outcome or issue, you know, what is kind of the range of what I would view as a reasonable outcome here? And as long as folks are within that range, maybe I would have done it a little bit differently around the edges or whatever. I'm sort of not going to touch it. You know, I try to really let people um, do their thing and provide guidance, you know, where they need it. Um, probably one of my um, uh biggest management um, things that I strive for is to encourage a diversity of views on um, on important issues because I really think the more input you have from a more diverse um, set of views, the better results you are going to get. And I've always been someone who, you know, go around the table and ask everyone, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Um, and encourage people to push back. Um, and I've always tried to create an environment, both here and in private practice, where people should feel very comfortable pushing back and saying, I disagree with you, and here's why. And that may change the outcome. It may not change the outcome. But I think the only way you're going to make good decisions is if people feel really comfortable pressing on them. Um, and then I think creating an environment where people can give you bad news um, is critical. Um, and this kind of almost comes back to some of what we were talking about with public companies and things before. Like, you need to be able to take in bad information because bad stuff happens and it happens all the time. People make mistakes. You know, litigation goes off the rails. Like, all kinds of stuff happened. And people need to be able to come to you and know that you're going to take it in. You're going to take it in calmly and you're going to help come up with a solution as opposed to blaming, yelling, you know, distancing yourself. Um, and so I think those are, you know, some of the um, some of the things I've tried to do. I also try to, you know, I spend most of my days having people present issues and seek a decision. Um, and I try to give people my undivided attention, focus on their issue, and let them leave the room with a decision every time. They don't always get a decision right away. Sometimes I need to think about it. But I try to um, I try to strive for that. Yeah, because uh, if you don't create the environment of diversity uh, or having an environment where people feel comfortable enough to 
come to you with the bad news, then they go leak it to the press or or, or try to like solve that. it themselves, which, um, which be can be a disaster. Disaster often turn out to be a disaster. That that totally makes sense. Um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your personal journey and your background, How, like where you started? I mean, I, I think you went to college in New Jersey, and you know, kind of uh, started where we are back when you were an undergrad. What made you wanna go to law, uh, and how did you end up at SCC? Yeah. Um, yes, I did. I went to college um, here in New Jersey, um, and then went to Temple Law School, and. I don't recall sort of a specific thing driving me towards law school, but I do recall wanting to be a lawyer from a very young age. Um, I think I always viewed law as sort of um, uh, being a criminal prosecutor. You know, in my mind, that's kind of um, the direction I thought it would head. And even when I was in law school, I did a mix of things. I did, you know, an internship in a public defender's office and did some real criminal litigation oriented type things and thought I would go there. And when I was graduating law school, um, and I had originally thought I was going to go to um, a law firm in Philadelphia. Um, and the more I thought about it in my third year of law school, the more I thought, I think I'd really like to work for the government um, and and learn a thing. I'm not sure I really felt like it was securities, but I kind of felt like I wanted to focus on something and really develop a skill that I could be then, really good at. Yeah, that was kind of how I thought about it. And so I interviewed in a bunch of different places. Um, in New York City and elsewhere, and you know, ultimately um, got this set of interviews at the SEC. And each time I went back for another round of interviews, the job seemed more and more interesting. Um, and so I went to the SEC. I ultimately did that, scrapped the whole law firm thing, moved to New York City. Um, you know, it was kind of a, a big move for me at the time, and I had no family or anything in New York, and uh, worked for the SEC. Uh, in enforcement for probably three and a half years or so, really loved it, really on the ground investigating cases, you know, the kind of stuff we've been talking about. Um, and then after three years or so, received an offer to work for a commissioner um, at the SEC in Washington. Um, and uh, I ended up taking that. It was Commissioner Paul Carey um, and moved to Washington. And, you know, it was a completely different job. And I, I, I loved the job I had, but at the same time thought this would give me such a broader perspective of what the SEC does because a commissioner deals with all the issues, not just enforcement. So policy issues and all kinds of other things. And so I went and worked for him for a year um, and it was fascinating. And, you know, after that, I was kind of ready to A, go back to New York and B, really go back into casework. But at that point, you know, I was really a securities enforcement lawyer um, and it kind of got me what I'd intended for it to 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 get me, um, you know, specialized experience in an area of the law. And it turned out that I loved the securities laws. And I ultimately went to a law firm, moved back to New York City, went to a law firm where I stayed for about 15 years um, doing securities enforcement work, representing, you know, a combination of individuals, financial institutions, boards, other, other you know, entities in front of the SEC, DOJ, other agencies, but on securities issues. Um, and so I stayed there for about 15 years. And then the big change for me was um, about six years ago when I came back to the SEC. And so, you know, for me, that was a huge change because I'd lived in New York 20 years. I had three kids, my husband, you know, our whole life was New York City. Um, we had our jobs, our school, our stuff. I loved my job. I really did. Um, and I was not looking to leave, but the right opportunity came um, to go back to the SEC as the deputy director. And 
somehow, you know, my family agreed um, to make the move and we did it and it was a huge life change. You know, we didn't, we had some friends in DC and stuff, but we moved um, to the suburbs. So we went from living, you know, in New York City to a suburb of Washington, um, went from private practice to the government, you know, just sort of all kinds of changes. Um, and it ended up, I mean, it was a huge risk. Um, and I sort of had to approach it as like, you know, I'm going to take this job. Um, as long as I have it, I'm going to enjoy it. And maybe I, it turns into something else and maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe I get to become the director and maybe I don't. Um, but it's going to be a great experience. And that's really how I thought about it. And it turned out great for me, right? I mean, the administration changed. Chairman Clayton came in, asked me to stay on. Steve Pekin joined. We became co-directors. And it has been absolutely fantastic. It turns out to have been the best you know, career decision I could have ever made in terms of, you know, I, I say all the time I have the best job in Washington, and I firmly believe it. I mean, I just have a job I love going to every day. Um, you know, all kinds of interesting issues, legal policy, everything, and I have colleagues who are fantastic. So, you know, I, I'm going to continue to enjoy it for as long as I can, and um, and I'm really glad I took the risk when I did, and I'm really glad my husband and my family agreed to take the risk with me. It's just so interesting to hear all the policymakers. They they always say it's it's a right decision to go from uh, from <laughs> their you know private practice uh, private sector job to the government because it seems that the government really uh, does uh, so many interesting things. Yep. Uh, I wanted to just quickly follow up on that. I mean, you have three kids and <laughs> your mom, your uh, uh, wife, and and I I suppose. You know, as you mentioned to me briefly on our way here, this job doesn't really give you a lot of free time. And <laughs> how do you balance the whole work life thing? Because I think so much of the narrative that seems to be presenting to young girls and young mm -hmm. people these days that you have to make a choice between, you know, either being the woman that has no family life or being the stay home mom. So. I, it's a great question. I think it's very, um, it's very difficult balance, um, and you have to figure out what works for you, I think. You know, when I'm home on the weekends, I try to, you know, give my family my attention. I try to separate, you know, work and make specific times where I'm doing work and specific times where I'm doing family stuff. But I think we all figure it out, um, you know, sort of day by day and what works for us. And so there's no doubt that I feel you know, very frequently, like, I'm not doing enough at home, and I'm not doing enough at work, and you're pulled in two directions. Um, but I try to do different things like, you know, I go over, I sit back at the beginning of each sports season, for example, and figure out what games my kids have. And I block out some on the calendar. I can't go to all. I know I can't go to all. But I block it out on the calendar. And I block it out as though it's a client obligation. It's a meeting that can't be changed. Um, and I plan around it, right? And I don't I don't move on it. I don't view those obligations as, as things optional. that are optional, exactly. And so that's just one example. But um, but I think that's kind of how you get there. I mean, it was it's a hard path. It was a hard path. You know, I made partner at the law firm um, when I was pregnant with my first child. And so in many ways, I was lucky because that hardest part, those years leading up to the partnership consideration, I didn't have young children. And so um, I think um, I think that would have made it, you know, a lot harder then. But I've seen women do it, you know, since then. And it's it's just all about figuring out 
where that balance is. And it's really about being comfortable with saying, no, I can't do that right now. I have to get home to my family or I have this thing or I have that thing. And I think as a society, we all have to be better about doing that. And I, I've seen it over the years. I mean, the legal community is substantially different than it was when I joined it 25 years ago, right, in terms of both women and men being able to be very upfront about, sorry, I have a family obligation. Um, and so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to um, find ways to, you know, to strike that balance and to be open about it. Yeah, it totally makes sense because I can't imagine I me mean, being a woman lawyer tackling, you know, financial crimes. And, and, you know, the financial markets are obviously largely dominated by male, uh, white male a, a lot of times. So um, being able to have the, the courage and the vision to, to stand up uh, in front of those cases and being able to, to make a career out of it, especially giving the, the whole balance between family and work. I mean, it's just a, it's such a commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I am curious to hear your thoughts, because um, just to quickly wrap up here, you said the legal community has really evolved over the past 25 years, and I think um, maybe people's conception of government and regulators have also significantly evolved. Uh, and I was just talking about this with you on our way here. I mean, f few young people, I feel like, have the really the urge to work for a government these days. I have a friend who always jokes about me. He's like, Tiger, I really wanted to be a, be a SEC lawyer so I can arrest you when you go to Wall Street. He, he always jokes about that. <laughs> uh, so he, you're his personal hero. I have to introduce <laughs> him to you today. But um, it's like, why Why do people always think, think like, oh, Wall Street is the most exciting place to go? If I go to law school, I wouldn't want to do corporate law. Why would I want to do, you know, why would I become an SEC lawyer? I want to be the, the kick-ass mergers and acquisition lawyer and things like that. Well, I, first of all, I think you can do both. But um, <laughs> you can have a very broad and I think Jay Clayton was an was M&A lawyer or something. He was. Before that. Yeah. Um, he, was a, he was a very successful corporate lawyer. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I, so I don't think you have to take one path or the other, but government is such a great place to work. Um, it really is. You're, you're just – you're doing good things for good reasons, and I think the government needs good people in it. Um, and so, you know, I think – look, I find the legal and policy issues fascinating. The intersection of law and policy is fascinating, um, and being part of making decisions in that space is very exciting. But at the end of the day, you know, we are an agency filled with 5,000 very dedicated, very smart, very thoughtful people. Um, and everybody should strive to work for government. I firmly believe everyone should give back in some way, you know, whether it's government or whether it's some other sort of, you know, pro bono legal service or something else. But serving um, the investing community has been incredibly satisfying. I, I think uh, people have this uh, uh, probably... Uh, in disenchantment or, or illusion that um, the private sector are kind of the ones that often drive the innovations where the government are kind of the ones that are holding it back, you know, the, the regulators, you mm -hmm. know, the, um, whereas I think nowadays, given the big tech, given a lot of the sort of the antitrust sentiment that are happening in the past year or so, I think people are starting to realize that ultimately government's policies are shaping how society evolve and you cannot just um, rely on, quote-unquote, the private sector 
uh, and the big companies to solve all your problems and come up with those innovations that brilliantly solve everything. Yeah, there's no there's no question. There's a huge intersection of those issues, right? And and I think um, people's and we, just like we can't give to the government too much power either. So I think it's just always a push and pull, as you, as yep. you said to me. Awesome. Um, just a quick wrap-up question. What's your biggest takeaway about regulatory practices after all those years of observation, analysis? What do you think is the one most important lesson that you've learned? Probably, um, I don't know if it's the most important, but I think having perspective and using that perspective, I think, is critical. Um, Whether you're on the private side or the government or wherever you sit. I think having a diversity of perspective, even if you yourself haven't worked in other places or you know been the CEO of a, of a public company, you need to encourage diversity of perspective. And that's how you're ultimately going to get to the right answer. Absolutely. Uh, the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I asked uh, every one of our guests at the end of the show, uh, what's the punchline here for the financial markets, for regulation, for the SEC? Uh, what do you think is, or even for your personal journey or in life, what's the what's a catchy punchline? Now you're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, look, it's not a catchy punchline, but I think for what we do at the SEC, the financial markets need strong enforcement. It's critical. And I think um, regardless of how you look at it, this country has the best, the strongest, the deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world. Everybody wants to be part of them. And part of the reason everybody wants to be part of them is because fundamentally, I think they're thought of as fair. And they're only going to remain fair with strong enforcement. Thanks. Thank you so much for, for helping us ensuring that future and vision. And, and thanks so much for being here today with me, Mr. Hopkin. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, th- that was a wonderful conversation and great punchline to, to end that because I was actually, um, the Princeton Alumni Weekly magazine did a, a piece w- with me about this podcast. They asked me at the end of the interview, what's the punchline? And I was like, oh my God, I did not prepare for that. And I just rambled for long and on. So, but, but yeah, but th- that was a wonderful punchline and wonderful convers- conversation. So again, thanks, thanks so much. Thank for, you. Uh, awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Twitter. Um, f- find us on policypunchline.com. Rate and review us. You may find us on all kinds of platforms that have podcast shows and host Policy Punchline. So just give it a listen. That was uh, my interview with uh, Stephanie Avakin. She is the co-director of... Uh, the Division of Enforcement at the SEC. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.